0: Hello and welcome to a research top tips from Myelopathy Matters supporting AO Spine Recode DCM. In this series we are asking leading experts about core research concepts such as how to secure funding and how to balance an academic and clinical career. In today's episode, we hear from spine surgeon Dr. Michael Failings on his approach to clinical trial design. My name is Dr. Benjamin Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and founder of myelopathy.org and this is Research Top Tips from Myelopathy Matters. So welcome to this mini-series from Myelopathy Matters, supporting AO Spine Recode DCM, a process that brought people working and living with DCM together to identify the critical unanswered questions for the field. Whilst the question is fundamental to starting research, there are many more components to getting a research project off the ground. One of those challenges is of course designing the research project itself, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Michael Failings, a Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Toronto. Dr. Feddings is a leading surgeon scientist in the field of spinal cord injury and currently the most published author in DCM. He has led many large multi-center clinical trials, including most recently CSM-Protect, a randomized controlled trial of Riluzole. And I started by asking him what were the key areas he focused on when approaching designing a new clinical trial.
1: One needs to make sure that the question is an important question and that the question is answerable. We recognize that clinical trials should also involve uh, input from the key stakeholders, including people with DCM, so to ensure that the questions you're examining are relevant to the public. And then we need to ensure that there's equipoise so that it's a reasonable option to for example, randomize an individual to receive some kind of a control, which might be best available medical treatment versus uh, an alternative approach, a drug or some other type of a therapeutic initiative. And then in other circumstances uh, where it may not be as easy to randomize patients, for example, there may not be perfect equipoise there, There are methodologies which have now been developed, so prospective, non-randomized clinical uh, designs which can be used to assess uh, patient outcomes. And then in addition, from the translational perspective, having a health economics component uh, to the clinical studies is, is also very important.
0: I'm just going to pick up on some of those those, those key points there. So the trial design, because you have mentioned there that there are different options available. The randomization, the clinical equipoise can create some particular challenges. And I don't know whether you had any insights from CSM Protect you, you led, and I understand you're also involved with a different approach, which is um, in the CSM surgery trial.
1: Yes. So I've been involved with um, a number of uh, a clinical studies. So I'll, I'll give three examples of these, just to highlight uh, some of the different approaches. So, I led uh, a North American and then an international effort to examine the role and timing of surgical intervention for DCM, and in this circumstance it was felt that there was not equipoise to randomize patients to non-operative versus operative treatment And we elected to prospectively and consecutively accrue patients and for patients to be treated according to the the best available uh, standards of care in that particular uh, unit. And that was quite effective in terms of gaining substantial information on the role and timing of surgery. The trial that I have recently completed, the CSM-PROTECT trial, Examined the use of a drug, uh, riluzole, uh, which is uh, in common clinical practice in ALS. It's a sodium glutamate antagonist with an excellent safety profile. So here, I felt that there was equipoise in terms of randomizing patients to receive riluzole or not, because patients were receiving the standard medical and surgical treatment, and then they would get riluzole on on top of this. And so that's an example. Of where a randomized trial could be done. And then uh, the third example I might provide is a trial which was led by uh, Zogo Goswala from the Leahy Clinic in the United States with PCORI funding. And this study was examining the role of anterior versus posterior surgical techniques. It's called the CSMS study. And here, patients would be randomized if it was felt by the surgical team that there was equipoise between doing either an anterior or a posterior approach. And what was cool with this clinical design in the study was that every patient was reviewed by a multidisciplinary panel of surgeons who voted A on whether they felt that equipoise was present to randomize the patient, and then B, the surgeons would vote on the technique that they would use. And for a patient to be eligible for randomization, one was that the surgeons, uh, there had to be consensus that the the patients would be randomizable to an anterior versus a posterior approach, but then also there had to be a reasonable uh, spread of views on uh, surgeons favoring either an anterior or posterior approach. So those are three examples of different uh, trial designs that have been used quite effectively uh, to answer um, uh, important clinical questions.
0: Why would someone go to the lens, you know, for example, with the CSM surgery trial, to enable randomization? Why is that, Why is that important in in clinical research?
1: when When we're examining a question, we formulate a hypothesis. The hypothesis may be correct or it may be refuted, so it's an idea. So we have an idea that a drug may be beneficial or not. Although we try to be as objective as possible, we, researchers and clinicians, there's always inherent biases that may creep in, and patients want to get better, and there are biases that can creep in with the patient. So for example, it's known that there can be a placebo effect with drugs, so if, if a patient is aware that they have gotten a drug such as Ruliazol, they, they, might, they might report that their outcomes are somewhat better, e- even though there might not be an effect. It's referred to as a placebo effect. So randomization of treatment options and blinding of the assessments are standardized approaches to try to reduce bias and to get closer to the truth. In other cases, if there is not equipoise, however, if one treatment is sort of a standard of care, it's not ethical to randomize patients. But there are ways to reduce bias, and one of the critical ways to reduce bias is to have independent assessors of the outcomes and to use objective outcome measures that are quantifiable and that are reproducible. And so that's another way to reduce bias. And so essentially in clinical trials, it's about reducing bias and it's about getting as close to the truth and the correct signal as one can.
0: I think that's certainly the key message in terms of designing and planning any trial is making sure you're doing the absolute utmost to get to the truth. I think one of the challenges, obviously, with running clinical trials today is increasing the cost and the administrative burden. I guess just one comment in terms of your experience from leading different types of trial designs and perhaps how they're interpreted and perceived. Do you think there's a sense that we've become overly obsessed with the the randomization as the absolute gold standard and perhaps trials which haven't got that label are not getting necessarily the the impact that they should in terms of their outcomes?
1: Well... The randomized controlled trial is still considered to be and will likely be considered to be the quote-unquote gold standard in the majority of cases. And there are advantages and there are disadvantages to the randomized controlled trial. So there have to be certain things that have to be present for a a randomized trial to to occur. One is that it, it has to be ethical to randomize a patient. So if a clinician feels that a treatment is clearly superior, there is not equipoise there. But one of the other challenges with a randomized controlled trial relates to the generalizability. And then there are other issues related to crossover effects. So for example, generalizability. So let's say you have a patient population of a thousand people with DCM and you you do the randomized trial, but then it turns out that only 10% of the people with DCM actually agreed to be enrolled in the trial because 90% felt that the constraints and circumstances of the trial were not acceptable, that raises a, a potential bias that your results are specific to the patient population you've tested, but they may not be generalizable to the public. And so the design of the trial becomes very important, and there are approaches to manage this, what are called pragmatic randomized trials, which are somewhat less stringent than the classical randomized trial design, but allow for a greater generalizability. And another problem with randomized trials is that of crossover, and we've seen this when surgery versus no-surgery trials, so for example... There have been trials um, of surgery versus non-operative management for lumbar disc herniation, and some of those trials have had very high rates of crossover. So what occurs is the patient gets randomized to non-operative management, but then they don't do well with non-operative management, and they cross over to surgery. But many trials um, have a type of analysis called an intention-to-treat analysis. So even If a patient is randomized to one treatment and they cross over, they're still assessed as if they were in in the original treatment arm. And this, this brings in a source of bias. So having said that, one of the big evolutions that has occurred in clinical trial design is recognition that there are different trial designs that are appropriate uh, based on the type of a clinical question. And when randomization is feasible and ethical, then that's a good way to go. But when it is not, uh, there are non-randomized protocols, which can be very effective as well.
0: And you've also alluded to this, in delivering these trials, particularly when you're, you're crossing national borders, getting your team together and, and your collaborators must be very key.
1: Having a, an excellent collaborative network is absolutely critical. And I, I, I'm going to make a shout out here to AO Spine, which is, to my knowledge, the, the largest international professional body of spine surgeons in the world. And for, from my own work, uh, AO Spine has been critical in terms of facilitating international collaborative efforts in the areas of cervical myelopathy as well as traumatic spinal cord injury. It's difficult to do studies at an international level but it's worth it because it, it tremendously uh, enhances the generalizability of, of the results and ultimately uh, the international acceptance uh, once the results of, of the trial become public.
0: Looking back on all everything that you've, that you've achieved if you were starting your, your trial career again today, is there anything that you would you would change that you do today, which you hadn't done at the beginning, say, 10, 20 years ago?
1: Many, many things. Uh, you know, we learn. It would be nice if we could live our life retrospectively, but we can't. I, I think that um, one of the lessons that I learned um, in undertaking the Stascus trial, which is a surgical timing and acute spinal cord injury study, was... The fact that um, prospective non-randomized designs are valid. So I tried for years to do a randomized control trial on the role and timing of surgery and spinal cord injury and then I came to realize that there was not equipoise here and we were able to achieve that result with a prospective non-randomized design. So I think that people should not be averse to the notion of a prospective non-randomized design. And I think in general for uh, spine surgeons, that in many cases is indeed the gold standard. So I think people should be prepared to embrace this. I think the second critical point that I have learned is the importance of rigorous and prospective collection of data in uh, databases that are analyzable. The data are gold, high quality data are critical, and long-term follow-up is important. And then I think the other lessons that are important are having excellent collaborative networks. It takes time to build these collaborative networks, it takes effort to nurture these, and this becomes a critically important. And it's also important for the funding agencies to support such networks and to realize that sometimes the fruits of the investment won't be realized in the short term and that one sometimes needs to take a longer term view on these types of outcomes. And then finally, I think the importance of including the public. This became clear to me when we were developing Uh, the guidelines uh, through AO spine for the management of DCM and traumatic spinal cord injury. And we did include individuals uh, with DCM and with a spinal cord injury. And those insights from people with these conditions were really helpful because people can provide input in terms of the importance, for example, of a treatment that's beneficial but where the effect sizes might be perceived as being relatively small. And so one of the things that we learned in spinal cord injury, for example, is that small effects can actually have a pretty dramatic impact on the quality of life of, of individuals with spinal cord injury. And you know, having a person who is living the experience of having neurological impairment related to DCM or SCI is critically important.
0: Just to touch on that last point, a lot of the work that you've done on, on examining what is a meaningfully clinical difference and that identification, the that, that numbers on a scale, you know, what does that mean? That links a little bit into another important feature of trial design, which is selecting your endpoints, uh, and obviously a little bit about what Recode is, is trying to establish. But what is your perspective on the selection of endpoints?
1: The selection of, of the outcome measures, the endpoints that are used, is absolutely critical. And this represents a a huge area of opportunity. So during the course of the degenerative cervical myelopathy studies that I led, we widely used and validated a number of outcome measures, specifically the Modified Japanese Orthopedic Association Scale or the MJOA scale. The MJOA scale, as a result of this, has become the current gold standard for the assessment of outcomes in DCM, but the MGOA has many limitations. It's, it's relatively insensitive in detecting change in the milder end of the spectrum of DCM. It's not great at picking up pain outcomes, and so we need improved outcome measures to, uh, to reflect some of the changes that we're examining.
0: My final question before we for let you get back to your busy day, what would be your recommendations for researchers looking to learn more about developing and perhaps conducting clinical trials specifically uh, in, in myelopathy?
1: Well, I, I think it's important to get the training and to raise the awareness. So we have an opportunity as teachers in residency programs and in fellowship training programs to make our trainees aware of the condition of DCM, to make people aware of the literature which is there, and to try to inspire people to uh, answer questions. And then, in my view, every neurosurgeon, orthopedic surgeon who takes spine should have a basic toolkit available in evidence-based medicine to be able to evaluate the literature and perhaps to be able to answer questions. And then a a subset of those individuals, I think, will be inspired to undertake specialized research training, to be able to undertake clinical trials or to do basic laboratory investigation.
0: And you think that's in higher degrees, dedicated research time?
1: Yes, there are different models which are, are present. So in Toronto, We have created what's referred to as the Surgeon-Scientist Training Program, and the majority of our neurosurgical registrars do uh, obtain advanced degrees, either master's degrees or PhDs in research. So that is one model. Other models might involve taking specialized programs or courses. So the AO Foundation offers an excellent program called AO Peer, which provides, in a a course-based format, the essential knowledge and toolkits which could enhance the ability of clinicians to undertake research. So there's a variety of approaches that can be used.
0: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Fadings, and lots more information and support for developing and running your clinical trial from the emerging Aospine Recode DCM toolkit, which is at aospine.org forward slash recode. So a big thank you to my guest, Dr. Michael Failings. You can find lots more information about Aospine Recode DCM, including more top tips episodes and other resources to support your DCM research at aospine.org forward slash recode. This episode was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. To stay abreast with the latest news in the field of DCM, why not subscribe to Myelopathy Matters on your favorite podcast app? Or if you have an experience or perspective you would like to share, please email me ben at myelopathy.org until next time goodbye